Hello and welcome to Gay for Horror, the show where not all the movies are gay, but I sure am. Hello, how are you doing? <laughs> Today I am going to talk about uh, a queer independent short film which you can find for free online, and therefore there are absolutely no excuses as to why you shouldn't have watched it by now. Uh, <laughs> so if you if you, you haven't, uh, you could tell from the title, but uh, if you haven't, uh, I really direct you right now to go watch The Quiet Room on Crypt TV, which you can find through YouTube for free. Or if you are a Shudder subscriber, you can go onto Shudder and watch it right now. So I'm going to do what I've done in the past, which is try to do non-spoiler review. And then I'm going to ring a physical bell, which sounds like this. And come back and do spoilers. I know I could just tell you I'm switching to spoilers, but the bell makes it festive. So uh, <laughs> the quiet room is... Uh, just as a brief synopsis for the non-spoiler folks who haven't watched it, but again, you can watch it for free. Uh, this the Quiet Room is a really great horror short about a queer person who uh, attempts to commit suicide and then goes to uh, a mental hospital uh, to recover, and during that time encounters a strange, possibly supernatural entity uh, called Hopeless Hattie, who seems to seduce men and bring them to their demise. Uh, and part of how, actually, the only reason maybe I know about the movie is that Hopeless Hattie is, in fact, played by Alaska Thunderfuck, uh, who you might know from RuPaul's Drag Race or just from the internet at large. Uh, I, I'm actually a tremendous fan of Alaska Thunderfuck. She's uh, one of my uh, most favorite drag queens and uh, just a brilliant performer. And I want to talk more in the spoiler section, actually, about how uh, she's used in this movie very particularly. And I think it's a really interesting fact that, of course, uh, she's credited as Alaska Thunderfuck, not as Justin Honored, who is the performer who creates the illusion of Alaska Thunderfuck. Um, Whereas comparatively, if you do also, uh, if you're a fan of Drag Race or a fan of drag, you might know that, uh, you might know Katya from, uh, among other things, the Trixie Katya show, which is on the internet sometimes called, uh, uh <laughs> Katya is also in this movie, but Katya, who appears very much as her, her sort of boy persona, uh, is, is in fact credited as, uh, her, you know, her legal name, Brian McCook, not as Katya. And so I guess in some sense, Katya doesn't actually appear at all in this movie. Brian McCook appears in this movie. But Alaska, I think, you know, rightfully and comparatively, is, is especially credited as Alaska. And I want to break down why and how that's particularly important in the spoiler section. So we'll get to that. Um, I wanted to just give prelude to... Prelude to my experience with Alaska. I usually like to do anecdotes in the context of the reviews, so I, I'm, I'm going to lapse briefly to talk about this, and uh, you know, because I want to. Uh, but actually, my best and most favorite Alaska story, uh, having been a fan and a follower for years, is uh, that that I went to see what was the first performance, I think, of many of her one-woman show. Uh, called Rent for Filth at the Laurie Beachman Theater, which is, in fact, a basement of a restaurant <laughs> in New York where many drag queens do wonderful cabaret shows, um, and, and everyone goes for the drag queens, and we, uh, we, uh, we eat the food 
because it's there. Uh, but uh, I went to her one-woman show called Red for Filth, which you might be familiar with if you uh, watch season five of RuPaul's Drag Race, where she markets uh, a uh, purely fictional, unfortunately fictional, perfume called Red for Filth. Uh, but I went to her the, the first night of her one-woman show with my good friend Heather, and we uh, got there early and sat up front. But it, we hadn't really had any concept that it would be attended or well attended or, or you know especially attended by 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 impressive or exciting people but as it turned out uh there were people it's new york and there's people and uh and uh and good drag does bring all the people together and uh, kate bornstein was there which is really exciting kate bornstein if you don't know is the author of among other things gender outlaw which is a really influential 1990s uh study of gender that really uh was a strong proponent for thinking of gender as, as a non-binary concept. Uh, and so Kate Bornstein was there, and that was very exciting. And then um, Jinx Monsoon was also there. Jinx Monsoon had just won RuPaul's Drag Race. And, and, and so that was actually also very exciting, because, you know, it was a... It was the queen. Uh, <laughs> when you win Drag Race, you're kind of the queen for a year, aren't you? So... Uh, very much Jinx Monsoon showing up was very much like the queen walking into the room. It was very uh, special. And uh, she sat at the front at a table, and it was exactly like that scene. If you've ever seen Marie Antoinette, the Sofia Coppola movie with Kirsten Dunst, that scene where uh, you're not supposed to clap at the theater, and Marie Antoinette claps, and then all of the subjects clap because she's the queen. And when the queen, the queen claps, you clap. And then later in the movie, when she's losing favor, she claps and no one claps with her. And that's how she knows that no one likes her anymore. Uh, it was very much like that because uh, Jinx Monsoon was at this particular moment the queen. And uh, when the queen laughs, bitch, you laugh. So the theater, I mean, it wasn't that no one would have laughed or no one did not laugh without the cue. But if the queen laughed on something that you didn't laugh on, you best catch up because clearly when the queen laughs, you laugh. So. There'd be some lines that struck Jinx Monsoon particularly funny, and um, and everyone would just keep, would keep would just catch on, and just give the they'd give the the, the echo of laughter, uh, and it was very it was an extraordinary demonstration of queer uh, power. <laughs> Uh, there's one, like, there's one moment, like, improvisational moment, I don't know why, I don't know why I remember this, but Alaska says, like, uh, she said to someone in the front row, you know, you pay the extra money to sit up front and all you get is my spit in your filet, and Jinx Monsoon thought the word filet was so funny, and I, you know, it's not, not funny, it's just that it didn't make me laugh immediately, but then when Jinx Monsoon laughs, you just sort of have to laugh. Because you don't you don't leave the queen alone, yeah. <laughs> you have to support her anyway. So it was a really sp- and probably were other people I didn't see, but those that's who I saw, and so it was just a really fun sort of charmed evening. It was also an amazing show. If you don't know the sort of whole mythology of Alaska, uh, I'll give you a little primer here pertaining to the show, but also it will help later. Uh, which is that the context of the show is that she is a an alien from the planet Clamtron who has come to Earth who is kind of doing an an approximation of American uh, or U.S. or Earth glo- <laughs> uh, fashion culture, which is sort of results in her being an amalgamation of everything gauche and also a bit of a short, short-circuiting kind of alien interpretation of Earth culture, which is to say a bit 
odd at, at the edges, which is, is part of the beauty of it. Uh, and in, in in the context of the show, it was sort of loosely inspired, I think, by things like La Boheme or these sort of great operas where there's this sort of glamorous uh, courtesan who's dying of consumption. And uh, 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 Or if you don't know La Boheme, like, think Rent or Moulin Rouge. Uh, <laughs> um and so the the premise of the show is that she she was a beautiful glamorous alien from the planet Glamatron, but she in fact could not survive in Earth's atmosphere and was slowly dying and uh, spitting up uh, more and more blood as the show went on. And a huge kind of wonderful corner of Alaska's world is the intersection of glamour and horror, or the intersection of glamour and something uh, sort of uh, uh, dangerous or scary or. or uh, Gross I and mean, grossness, I think, has a role too, and an important one, uh, which again will make everything that comes later, I think, really interesting, uh, and makes the movie really interesting as well. Uh, but anyway, in the context of this show, this is like my personal, <laughs> this is my personal self-indulgent anecdote. But if you're listening to this, I and mean, what else are you asking for besides that? Uh, which is that in the context of the show, she does, uh, she does this bit, and I, I, by the way, I, I still don't know where the bit was supposed to go. Like I don't know. And you'll see why in a minute. But I don't know what the end of the bit actually was, because I, I, I think I intercepted her bit. I apologize if that's what I did. But um, she was going person to person, or table to table, and asking for requests. Uh, you know, and every time someone would ask for a request, she'd make a joke, like, oh, I don't do that, I don't have the whatever, or yeah, oh, yeah, honey, I don't have the time, I don't know the words. And she would just sort of go around the room, you know, like a drag queen does. And, and again... It was a beautiful, wonderful show. So everything is, uh, everything I'm saying is a compliment and a joy. Uh, but uh, she came over to me and uh, said, "You know, would you have a request?" Uh, and I had seen like a week before this, she and her piano player Jeremy had posted a, a video on YouTube. It was uh, Jeremy playing piano in Alaska singing uh, Miami You've Got Style, which is, if you don't know, and how could you not, but if you don't know, <laughs> it's the fictional jingle that Rose and uh, Dorothy write in an episode of The Golden Girls, wherein they enter a contest to write a jingle for the city of Miami. And they write this song called Miami You've Got Style. Uh, it's a really great episode. It's one of my favorite storylines <laughs> in a Golden Girls episode ever. I'm obsessed with the Golden Girls, so it's Alaska. And I knew that, and I knew that she knew that this song, and I thought it would be funny to say, well, my request is that you say Miami, you've got style. Because honestly, it was, if genuinely, if I could have made a genuine request, that would have been it. And I, again, I don't know where the bit was going or if it was what, what its intended end was, but she just kind of stopped and she looked at me. And at this point, you know, she was, the theme was red for filth. She was wearing a gorgeous red gown. Between the hair and the heels and the fact that she's a relatively large human in terms of height, uh, she's about nine feet tall, right? About a nine foot tall drag queen in a red gown with, and I remember this part, particularly a red, a fake red glitter mole on her cheek and she looked down at me uh, with a kind of uh, suspicion and confusion and just said you're crazy and I remember looking up and thinking you're a nine foot drag queen who's from an alien planet with a fake red glitter mole if you think I'm crazy then I'm fucked because clearly clearly we're both a little bit off <laughs> 
<laughs> but I didn't say any of that because I don't. I'm not. I don't have gumption. Uh, and so she. And okay. So where the story ends, by the way, is that she fucking stopped the bit. I don't know what she, where she was going or what she's doing. She fully did on stop the bit and went on stage with Jeremy and did the entirety of. Miami You've Got Style. And it was magical. <laughs> it was heavenly. Uh, it's my favorite, most cherished Alaska Thunderfuck memory. Okay, um, so I'm going to talk about uh, more and different things uh, at this stage. Um, so I just also want to point out, too, this is... Um, I haven't mentioned yet, and I should have. Uh, this is a, uh, a, a queer filmmaker who, who directed this movie. His name is Sam we Sam Weinman. Um, so if you can, again, as I've said, please uh, go watch the movie either on Crypt TV, uh, which you can find on YouTube or on Shudder. Um, it is terrifyingly true that often people who are working in the arts need desperately for other people to click buttons in their favor in order to acquire future funding <laughs> for artistic projects. Um, you would think that uh, those kinds of decisions would be made based upon quality of work, uh, but uh, very often if you can demonstrate that you have a large impact or a large following or that you have lots of clicks on a video, uh, whether it be a short film or a reel or just a social media page, um, those kinds of things help, you know, really concretely. So if you take the time to go watch the movie on uh, CryptoV or Shutter, I think you will actually actually contribute to the success of the filmmaker who I hope makes m m you know, many other and, and more films than this. Um, just some things I want to touch on in a non-spoiler sense. Uh, what I like most maybe about the queerness of the film is n not even necessarily only its horror aspects, but actually the way that it constructs itself in terms of character relationships. And I think this is the kind of touch that you do get from having a queer filmmaker make a horror film as opposed to having a horror film that queer people read into and, and sort of positively engage with, which, by the way, is a historical practice I'm all for and do often <laughs> in my life and in my career. Uh, but to have films that are uh, that are horror films that are made by queer people, you, think you get things that are just not present in other movies. And I think one of the aspects of this movie that I really like and I'm attracted to is the way in which it plays with the connection uh, between queerness and the historical relationship. Uh, sorry, the historical relationship between queerness and mental illness, um, which is to say that. Uh, in a couple of ways. I mean, one is just the sort of pragmatic sense, which is that queer people face a really um, overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly greater rate of suicide attempts um, and suicide suicides, period, um, especially youth, especially uh, trans people. Um, and so that actually takes on a rather important uh, 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 quality here, the fact that this is a queer horror film that addresses the issue of suicide, the temptation of suicide, the uh, conditions under which queer people feel hopeless and feel uh, driven to suicide. Uh, and then also the historical connection, which is to say that I have always often been uh, interested in the ways in which queerness have has historically been associated with mental illness in especially horror movies. So um, some films that I really love are these 1940s horror movies with um, actors like Larry Kagar, who was a queer actor working in the 40s, who mostly played villains and, and often killers. Uh, and the way in which those films really um, made an attempt to 
explain why a character was a killer by alluding to uh, an effeminacy or a lack of sexual adulthood in some way, whether it be a kind of juvenile relationship to sexuality or, uh, you know, a kind of same-sex attraction possibility or a uh, incestuous attraction or, or violent attraction, something that was just outside of the norm of, of typical adult sexuality. Um, and you see this a lot in, in classical Hollywood horror movies, and I, that's uh, a really interesting connection. I mean, you see it after classical Hollywood, too. I mean, in films like Dress to Kill, for example, has a sort of psychologizing aspect, or uh, very famously Psycho has a psychologizing aspect, or... Um, uh, also <laughs> worth your time, by the way, the William Castle knockoff of Psycho called Homicidal from one year later has a cuckoo psychologizing aspect. <laughs> um, I'd love to talk about that movie more at length, actually, um, in a future episode I want to do. I want to do more throwback episodes to older movies. I will get to that, and I might do Homicidal first when I do get to that. Uh, but anyway... Queerness in the history of horror movies has often been a way of explaining what's wrong socially or indicating that a, ki a killer is sort of socially wrong or different. Uh, and so to, to make a queer horror film in 2019 that is about exploring with more nuance and from a queer perspective what it means to be a queer person struggling with mental illness that's a gift for me and I think for everyone. <laughs> um, so I'm very grateful for the, the film. Uh, uh, you know, one thing that's important to think historically, which is that, um, uh, homosexuality wasn't removed from the DSM as a mental illness until 1973. And so all movies made in, you know, uh, the sixties and prior were being made in a historical circumstance where, uh, homosexuality was by tactical definition, a mental illness. Um, and, and, you know, there was resistance to that earlier than the 60s, but it, it certainly, uh, it was not fully and officially contested and, and, and formally removed as a diagnosis of mental illness until the very early 70s. Um, and, and that's an important part of thinking about the way that these characters have been built throughout history and horror movies, because uh, often it was a very convenient way of signaling something was wrong with them was to sort of build into them some sort of queer aspect in terms of gender or sexuality. And the movie here also gets at a kind of uh, tension between the queer uh, patients in the mental hospital and the staff and the general structure of the mental hospital, which I think is really... Um, which really rings true. Um, this is not an attempt to discredit the entire uh, industry of men mental health services, but there certainly is, and I think especially possibly for queer people who are um, seeking particular and sometimes unique um, from others uh, uh, outcomes and, 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 and identifications, uh, you do find tensions and you do find that people are not being served and that people are not being taken care of. And so there's this kind of great small moments in the movie where, uh, for example, when the main character, uh, Michael, shows up and he, he walks into this uh, room expecting group therapy and everyone there informs him that, in fact, there's no such thing as group therapy and that it's put on the paperwork to get government certification, but actually there's not really anything being offered in the room besides playing cards. Uh, and so immediately you have him 
uh, being housed in a mental hospital, but being ultimately really counseled about how to survive by his queer peers, more so than by the medical professionals around him. Although there are uh, one or two who are sympathetic and, and are kind of individualistic and willing to talk to him and address him as a human being. Um, it's really a kind of a peer group. And I do really like the environment of this kind of isolated cluster of queer peers who uh, support each other. I think it reminds me a bit, I really liked, um, in college I read and really liked the Augustine Burroughs book, Dry. Uh, Augustine Burroughs is probably more famous for his other memoir, which is, well, maybe there's more than two. Well, one of his other memoirs, which is called Running With Scissors, which was a fairly popular book and became a movie with Annette Bening some years ago. Uh, but he has this other memoir that I think was published first, if I'm not mistaken, called Dry, which is about his alcohol uh, treatment uh, and, and his time spent in rehab. And I really love that book because it created this little small world of queer characters. You kind of meet each other in the hallways, you know, after group, th- group therapy or group discussions and form their own kind of private world together. And this film has that kind of quality where it's a group of kind of queer peers who are united in their help and support of each other in the presence of a kind of apathetic uh, hospital staff, or just a hospital staff that's ill-equipped to speak with and and, and positively counsel uh, people who are not really interested in the things that they might be interested in trying to get them to affirm. So uh, I think the, the movie's really uh, smart and sensitive and, and uh, really enjoyable in the way that it, it dramatizes particularly this kind of queer space or this kind of queer interpretation of a mental health space uh, and and, the, and that says nothing of the, the horror movies of the of the horror aspects of the movie uh, it's a really good horror movie and there are really kind of scary creepy moments and I think uh, but I really am most struck by those kinds of uh, character aspects. Uh, but what I, what I will say about the horror elements too, you know, in a non-spoiler sense, if you just want to want, kind of know what you're getting into, I think the horror aspects are very strongly constructed in relationship to the characters. And, I, and, and this is also, I think, too, speaks to what I'm saying about the a lot of the character relationships being so important here is that the horror, horror aspects really are an extension of the character drama. So uh, the main character is kind of tempted by suicide, uh, experiencing a, a kind of hopelessness, a darkness. And in the sort of midst of these personal demons, he arrives in the space where he encounters perhaps an actual demon. Um, <laughs> and so uh, we get this kind of great extension of his psyche in the form of something supernatural or dangerous that intends to do harm to him and of course the threat of the hopeless Hattie I'll say this much I don't think it's really spoilers the threat of hopeless Hattie is that she will seduce you to commit suicide finally um, and everyone who sort of who dies by her methods uh, it dies through their own suicide uh, so really the drama is about hopelessness the temptation of suicide among queer people and the way in which that is fleshed out is through a horror story with a demonic character played by a drag queen. And so, it's great. <laughs> um, I'm going to ring uh, ring a bell, uh, and then I'm going to start talking about spoilers, just because I don't know how much more I can say. Uh, and then I want to go through some like key elements that I really love, and, and break them down uh, in, in detail, and details that you would might want to have saved for you if you've never seen the movie before. So I'm going to ring my, my, my physical bell that I have in the room with me. Okay, um, 
So there's a couple of really, uh, uh, I tend on this side of the review to do a lot of uh, fussy things. So um, just things that I'm particularly struck by or obsessed with. Uh, and I really want to talk about, um, I really want to talk about, I really want to talk about a song. <laughs> and I want to talk about Christmas. I know that this... The, the, stick with me. Um, I really want to talk about Christmas. This might be sort of uh, colored by the fact I am currently working on a proposal about queerness and uh, Christmas in horror movies and, and queer uh, representations uh, resisting kind of the uniformity of Christmas and, and and so maybe this sort of is coloring my my obsession with this particular fact of the movie but there's a really lovely moment it's a great dramatic scene uh, but it's also really interesting to me there's a lovely moment where Michael is explaining what happened to Ben, who is his deceased uh, former partner or boyfriend, and uh, that he had died in an accident, and that uh, Michael feels guilty for his death, and that this is seemingly the basis for his uh, attempted suicide. Uh, uh, and that's a hell of a scene, by the way, for uh, a 27-minute horror short. <laughs> like, it's a really uh, audacious and, 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 and really earnest um uh, attempt at giving a character an incredible depth and motivation uh, that we often don't see in feature-length uh, horror movies. So that's a, a, a testament to the movie. Uh, but also, there's the way that that scene ends is so he's he's ended up sharing this room with this other um, uh, person in his ward or floor or whatever, uh, who's uh, named Hunter, who's basically flirting with him and gets someone to transfer him into Michael's room. And, um, and, uh, it sort of, the scene ends with Hunter cradling Michael and singing in his ear, uh, a Sophian Stevens song called Christmas in the Room. And I have no way of knowing the origins of, like, why that song or, like, where that song comes from or if it's, like, a, an easy-to-acquire song or a song that was just available for some reason, uh, but I'm going to just treat it with all the seriousness in the world because I really love I love the moment. I love the choice of song because when I first... I actually watched the, the film twice and the first time I watched the film, it, like, it sounded familiar and I was like, I don't really know what that is. I wonder what song that is. And then I, uh, the second time I kind of uh, paid more attention. Uh, but if you don't know Sophie Stevens, he's, you know... Um, oh God, how do you describe Sophie Stevens? I mean, the sort of joke way is saying that, like, he is an artist who you sometimes uses male pronouns in songs, but it's unclear if those pronouns are about male lovers or Jesus, which is, which is because he is somehow something of a Christian artist, but also comes across to many people as something of a queer artist, and that only seems amplified by the fact that he has the recently recorded songs for the soundtrack to Call Me By Your Name. Uh, and uh, Sufjan Stevens has for many years done these like uh, Christmas EPs that have come out annually. I think they're things that he gives to friends at Christmas or used to give to friends at Christmas and then eventually he put them into a big box set. And you can kind of buy like the Sufjan Stevens Christmas smorgasbord. And one of the songs is called Christmas in the Room and uh, that's the song that Hunter like sings or kind of, you know, 
sing whisper sings into into Michael's ear uh, after he has this sort of emotional moment where he confesses what happened and, and why he why he, he tried to kill himself. Uh, and this this I'm obsessed with this for a few reasons. Um, one is that I'm really interested in in uh, the particularities of Christmas as a thing that queerness resists. So, um, so if you are at all familiar, I'm going to make this as digestible and not obnoxious as I, as I can. And I think, I hope I can, I believe in myself that I can do that. But if you, if you're interested, uh, you can find and read a very short essay, uh, called Queer and Now by Eve Sedgwick, who's a sort of pioneer and queer theorist. Uh, but it, it is a very readable essay, and so I promise it is not, like, it will not make you angry and not make you, like... It, it's very readable, I promise. Uh, but you can find... It's pretty easy to find if you Google. It's in her book, Tendencies, but also if you just Google Queer Now plus Eve Sedgwick, it will probably come up, and you can find the PDF on the internet. Uh, but in Queer Now, which is one of my favorite essays, uh, Eve Sedgwick has this whole section about... Uh, you know, explaining queerness by explaining Christmas, which is to say that uh, she, you know, she breaks down that Christmas is this moment, uh, and not even in the religious sense. Christmas as a kind of cultural phenomenon is this moment where all of the institutions speak in the same voice, right? And like the stock market becomes about the stock, you know, the the value of different stocks around the holidays. The what is the Christmas stock market going to be? And all of the stores start to sell you Christmas things and decorations and they have sales timed with the arrival of Christmas and there's only ten more days till Christmas. Uh, and you have uh, you know government sh- you know, we have we have holidays, we have uh, uh, postage stamps with the Christmas holly on them, right? That, that, that there's like an endless inundation of sameness, that there's so much institutional affiliation with the idea of Christmas as a kind of universal concept that that everyone sh- seemingly must attach themselves to or at least be exposed to. Uh, and that queerness is a kind of flagrant resistance to the sameness of something like that, which is to say that queerness is definitionally not monolithic. It's always a resistant f- force in the face of something monolithic that is all-consuming and, and kind of culturally dominant like that. It is the it is a range of intermeshing possibilities uh, that expand rather than contract meaning. I hope that's not too annoying. Uh, but the point is... Uh, <laughs> Fucking with Christmas seems especially queer. And in horror movies, there's a whole tradition of this, and this is something I'm working on now, so bear with me, but in horror movies, there's this whole tradition of Christmas horror, um, and you can find it, uh, God, everywhere. I mean, just Google. Um, you know, there's... Uh, I'm writing about Christmas slashers right now, so Christmas slashers, there's Silent Night, Deadly Night, which is possibly the most famous, Um which was boycotted by people, uh, uh, parent groups that stood outside the movie theaters and uh, sang Christmas carols. And it was a movie in which a psycho killer dressed up as Santa Claus and murdered people. Uh, And it incited uh, many uh, really forceful critiques of its morality for ruining Christmas for small children. Uh, And uh, there was a very famous uh, Siskel and Ebert episode. They... Uh, 
sort of like looked into the camera and and started uh, scolding the people who made Silent Night, Deadly Night, and saying, you know, I'd like to know how you'd explain this to your children. How dare you say this is only a movie? Uh, and then they started reading the names of all the people who produced the movie and saying after every name, shame, 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 shame. <laughs> this really happened. I promise I'm not. If you Google, I think you can find it. Uh so anyway, uh, Christmas horror has long incited a kind of great outrage. Uh, possibly nothing more than Silent Night, Deadly Night. But there's Silent Night, Deadly Night. There's Silent Night, Bloody Night. There's um, Silent Night, Evil Night, which is more famously known as Black Christmas. Uh, there's also To All a Good Night, uh, Christmas Evil, New Year's Evil. There's like a lot of kind of holiday seasonal slashers and horror movies in general. Uh, and... There's something kind of like triumphantly bold and subversive about those movies because they just kind of want to ruin this thing that everyone wants to be wholesome and perfect. And and I think that that's a very queer impulse <laughs> to look at something sort of monolithically samey and wholesome and family-driven and that tries to limit meaning and limit people's available possibilities of identity and self uh, and just kind of like thumb your nose at it. Uh, and so to choose a Christmas song... It's kind of fucking great here. It makes me... I was just really kind of taken out with it. I don't know if it, it... Maybe it's a total accident, but I just love it. And if you listen to the lyrics of the song, you, you know, Christmas in the Room, uh, the lyrics literally say something like, you know, there's not going to be any Christmas wreaths or no like, holly berries or no silver bells. It's just going to be me and you. Uh, just the two of us, Christmas in the Room, together. Uh, which is an incredibly lovely sentiment, but also one that is very much consistent with what Eusedra was talking about, which is to say, the Christmas that we're going to make is our own different queer Christmas made just between you and I in this room together, and it's going to exclude the monolithic exterior forces that are uh, trying to limit our meaning. Uh, we're going to make meaning for ourselves together, and it's going to be our own original meaning, our own way of inventing and celebrating and having Christmas in the room, you and I together, not with these outside influences or the out these outside limitations. Which is just, it's, it's a, a remarkably good choice of song. Um, <laughs> uh, and I... I I also really have to say too, like another part of the song that I really love and I'm going to fuss about is I love that it has the duality of being an incredibly beautiful uh, sentiment that can turn dark. So there's a kind of refrain in the song that says, you know, just the two of us alone. And it, when it first comes on, it feels very sweet and it feels romantic. Uh, but when, when it kind of, moves on in the movie, it actually takes on a kind of a dark tone. Just the two of us alone can be this warm romantic sentiment, or just the two of us alone can be this scary isolated sentiment. And I think the movie very consciously plays on that. It reminds me a little bit of, um, if you've watched the original Halloween from, two, uh, sorry, not from 2019, God. Um, <laughs> the original Halloween from 1978, 
Uh, they did reprise this in the 2019 version, by the way, so I'm not like totally talking out of my ass, but in the 78 version, there's a very famous moment where uh, Jamie Lee Curtis uh, was told by John Carpenter, basically, we can't afford any music, so make up a song that, that Laurie is going to sing on the sidewalk, walking down the street, you know, and she doesn't know this, but she's being watched by Michael Myers. And so Jamie Lee Curtis invented a non-existent song where she sings the refrain, uh, I wish I had you all alone, just the two of us. Uh, which, you know, is really a paraphrase of <laughs> just the two of us alone. Uh, so, and, and, you know, the, the kind of excitement of that scene is it's like, it's, it's sung as a very happy pop song, like as if it were like a, a song on the radio that she had stuck in her head. But in the moment of Michael Myers' presence, it takes on this dark creepiness of like, I wish I had you all alone, just the two of us, meaning I wish I had you all alone as a killer who's going to murder you. Uh, so we hear uh, just the two of us alone. The refrain from Christmas in the Room is like very pointedly deployed to be, I think, a really dual uh, factor where you have the potential for that to be a great thing or a terrible thing. Uh, and I think the movie plays with that. And I also think it really speaks to, again, this kind of queer potential to make something new where it's like just the two of us alone, we have the potential to go in a positive direction or in a negative direction or a destructive direction or a productive direction. Uh, and there's a kind of, there's there's the potential within that phrase to have many and multiple future meanings uh, and not a limitation of meaning. Uh, and I think it's, it ends up sort of being kind of perfect. Uh, and uh, yeah. <laughs> And I wanted to, there's this other part that I'm really, I'm sort of fussy and obsessed with, which is uh, that particular song, it, it comes up again later in in um, this montage where it, Michael is kind of like, is kind of falling under the uh, spell, the seductive spell of, of Hopeless Hattie. Which, by the way, I also kind of love in a sort of in a, in a kind of queer sense that here horror is a, a kind of a seductive process, and not necessarily a immediately threatening process, but one that is about sort of comfort and relationality and bring someone into a space where they are vulnerable. Uh, but. Uh, the song comes up again in this sort of like montage of images where we sort of see throughout the whole uh, film, uh, we see Ben sort of turn into Hattie, sort of turn into Hunter, and we see this in different configurations. Um, and, you know, you'll see sort of like Ben laying on the bed behind Michael, kind of like cradling Michael, and then the camera will sort of turn and Ben will have become hopeless Hattie. Uh, which is a sort of good scare moment, but it's also an extension of the idea that the thing that is luring him to his potential suicide is is very much the legacy of, of his deceased boyfriend, and and who is and that legacy is embodied in this case by the sort of demon presence of hopeless Hattie. Uh, but I, I, there's a moment in the in this sort of sort of rapidly edited montage where we see Hunter and Ben and Hattie kind of in different moments throughout that they've appeared throughout the movie and kind of cradling Michael in the quiet room. Uh, it's a kind of like delirious moment where he's kind of having these visions. Uh, there's a moment where Ben is cradling Michael uh, and he kind of, uh, he definitely hums and possibly sings the Christmas in the room. 
uh, particularly the montage ends on that line, just the two of us alone. Now, I think even more more than ever with a kind of dark undertone, right? So in the earlier scene where Hunter kind of cradles him and has the potential, I think, to come across quite warm. And then when it's in this quiet room scene where that's sort of a delirious montage, it, I think, comes across more pointedly dangerous. But uh, it's still the idea that the image of Ben singing the song that Hunter sang earlier, um, we sort of have known that. Ben appears as some sort of figment that is an extension of Hopeless Hattie. Uh, we don't know for sure or have it kind of visually affirmed that Hunter is in any way represented visually as a figment of Hopeless Hattie, I don't think. Uh, but the fact that they're also interwoven and the fact that Ben as a character who may or may not be any sort of, you know, substantial manifestation of that person, that human, could always just have been this manifestation of Hopeless Hattie. The fact that that representation of that character is singing the song that Hunter sang earlier suggests somehow that, to me, that there's a, just thematically, a very strong fluidity between all three of those characters, which is to say that, like, the seduction, they're all sort of seductive, they're all, they all have romantic potentials, uh, and those romantic potentials are all tinged by something associated with death and darkness, unfortunately. Uh, and ultimately, what to me with that kind of signals or suggests is how very much all three of those kinds of characters end up being an extension of Michael's internal psyche. The, you know, I don't know, does that Christmas in the Room song have something to do with Ben? Is that a song that would have come from the story with Ben? And if it came from the story with Ben, would, it have, would Hunter have known that song? Or is it Hattie looking like Ben singing a song that Hunter sang earlier? Again, the sort of plot mechanisms don't really matter to me very much, but the the fact of the blurring of all of those characters, those three characters, and that they're all these sort of three romantic, uh, the sort of three prongs of, of romantic approach of seduction, which is, in this case, uh, uh, a kind of horrific luring. And ultimately, all they all kind of come across as an extension of Michael as a person and his particular uh, battle with uh, his temptation and his hopelessness and his darkness. So... Um, the, but anyway, I'm obsessed with the fact that Ben, as a character, ends up singing that song, both in the sense that it twists the just the two of us alone meaning into a dark sense, I think, very intentionally, uh, but then also just the fact that that character seemingly has no connection to that song, unless they do, and unless that's something that is supposed to complicate the relationship between all of those characters and, and, and complicate our sense of comfort around who is whom at any one point, because we actually don't have a sense of whether or not Hopeless Hattie could have been at some point, Hunter, or at some point, other people in the in the short. So, I don't know if that's just too fussy and no one cares, but I, I, I'm, those are some of the things that I'm obsessed with in this movie. Um, I want to talk about Alaska and the general use of Alaska, because I promised I would. Um, <laughs> uh, I love the way that she's used here. And, you know, if you are familiar, I think the way that she's used here is both, you know, a, an extension and kind of a reversal of some of her more traditional tropes. We meet Hopeless Hattie as a set of very sharp fingernails, like long, ghoulish fingernails with a very kind of wispy, uh, soft spoken voice. Uh, and those are like trademarks. <laughs> those are probably legally trademarks. <laughs> <laughs> by Alaska Thunderfuck, this, this sort of whispery kind of like Marilynish voice, um, and uh, and the long kind of ghoulishly long uh, talon-like 
fingernails. Um, if you've ever seen the music video for Nails, by the way, uh, there's a kind of strong familiarity of that kind of long, outstretched nail image uh, in with that kind of like last version of her overgrown nails that you see in that video where she's turned into this cl terrible claw that's going to eat that guy's face. It probably sounds crazy if you haven't seen the video. If you're curious, you can go, you can Google or YouTube, um, Alaska Thunderfuck nails. Uh, but she plays an alien. She, that's sort of an origin story for her character. It, 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 there's a sort of government agent who's, who's trying to chop off her nails and they keep growing back stronger and bigger. And by the end, there are these like outstretched talents that like claw his face off. Uh, quite ghoulish, and again, quite appropriate, and quite an extension of her visual work prior to this movie. The, the way that she's presented in this movie is, I think, often a kind of an extension of that work. Um, and yeah, and the soft sort of like wispy Maryland voice, I think that, you know, that is a sort of trademark Alaska voice, and she does the whole part really in that particular kind of wispy, seductive voice, uh, which... Again, I think is why she's credited as Alaska, particularly, because it really is a kind of Alaska in the role of Hopeless Hattie, which I think is uh, really interesting. But if also, if you, if you follow the Alaska, if you follow Alaska in general, you would uh, have some sense that I think some of what makes her, or has made her historically more special or, or, or particularly special, is the way that everything that she has done has had a layer of... Uh, a layer of pathos behind it. She's at once the most exaggerated artificial drag performer I can think of, and also the most sincere, emotional, and uh, with sort of like having of pathos in the sense that uh, she will do a very exaggerated, uh, over-the-top kind of like uh, drag queen dance song. Uh, case in point, your makeup is terrible, right? Um, which sounds like a very kind of bratty, funny uh, nightclub song. If you've not heard or watched, if you've not watched the video for your makeup is terrible, I mean, you could stop, you could pause and go watch the video for your makeup is terrible and then come back because I think that'll be especially important for this. But, uh, you know, that is, the video for your makeup is terrible. I would just say, it. I don't think it's an overstatement. I think it completely catapulted drag queen music into a new echelon. I don't think that's an overstatement. And part of what made that happen is that it was the most drag queen-ish in the sense that it was the most uh, invested in artifice and and image and 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 fashion and makeup and it was it was it was the most of all of those things. But there is such a tragic undercurrent and a really emotional undercurrent to just the statement alone, which, you know, the whole song is called Your Makeup is Terrible, which is an antithetical concept to the majority of drag queen songs, which have refrains like, I'm the shit, or I'm the diamond crown queen, or, <laughs> or look at my hot couture. There's, it's like a celebration of something, of, of otherness, of difference, of a kind of failure to achieve an idealistic and impossible goal. And it revels in that. And if you watch the video, there's a sort of particular undercurrent of darker, more deconstructed images, point and counterpoint with the most kind of glamorous images. So you have Alaska in very glamorous gowns, and then you have Alaska as a kind of deconstructed torso. Uh, with, you know, kind of like blood in one eye, looking incredibly, uh, you know, uh, 
looking uh, certainly physically bare and also looking kind of physically wounded in in a very in a very emotional sense. Uh, and and that video is you know filled with her coughing up blood and swallowing pills and shaving her head and there is such an undeniable undercurrent of emotionality. Uh, but it's but it's also sounds like the the happiest cheesiest silliest like nightclub song, but the, that undercurrent of darkness and weirdness and otherness and this is sort of to me the most special thing about her, and why this character in the movie kind of it, it feels like an extension of that because uh, there's always with Alaska work there's always like a there's a, a juxtaposition between a sort of high glamour and a very kind of v- 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 uh, oh, a kind of. I'm gonna find it. Just give me a second. I would say a, a warped vulnerability, like a vulnerability that is totally real, but which is played at a at a, at a level that feels satiric or, or like, or campy, right? It's like camp is present, but the camp is not denying the emotion. The camp is weirdly aiding and abetting the emotion. So there's a silliness, like I'm going to take this mouthful of pills, but there's something very vividly real about the image anyway. And so it is, I I have actually written about Alaska and I, I referred to her as an artist who deploys emotional camp. And I'll stand by that. Um, and with the way that she comes across in The Quiet Room, the movie, you see this kind of deconstructed, um, kind of just physically grimy character who has the sort of aspects of glamour in place, but they are taken to an extension that is grim. Like, the nails are not glamorous short nails. They are extended, kind of long, talon-like uh, features. Uh, you know, there's sort of, there's long black hair. It's not in a kind of very, like, stylish uh, (laughs) uh, shape. It doesn't come across as glamorous. It comes across as kind of thick and dark and greasy and kind of covered in substances. Uh, You know, there there are all these aspects. Uh, There is a sort of physical makeup, but the makeup is a sort of... Uh, all over pattern of kind of dark splotches and it doesn't have uh, symmetry. And so the Hattie character sort of plays like this uh, grim extension where the elements of glamour appear present, but they are all sort of taken to an extreme that makes them terrifying. And I think I particularly like that with the idea that this is a drag performer playing a, a demon in a horror movie, but almost really very much as a, almost like a drag demon or a demon that has many of the qualities of drag, but also has this undercurrent of sadness or darkness or weirdness. And I think uh, Alaska's work really speaks to that and calls that to mind. So if you do know her, it feels like a really happy combination of, of the two things uh, where I think she's totally great in the role and she's great as the character, but also if you have a sense of the context of her work, beyond the scope of this film, it feels very much like uh, a role that she has the capacity to embody uh, 
almost philosophically, because she is so much and in so many ways uh, an artist whose work is about visual glamour and camp, always driven by an undercurrent of emotion, sincerity, sadness, warmth, compassion, uh, darkness, grossness, weirdness, um, all those things. Uh, and, you know, again, if you watch your makeup is terrible, there's a, the video ends in this incredibly uh, impactful embrace uh, by Matthew Anderson, who is uh, very famously the kind of architect of RuPaul's drag and makeup. And this very kind of like sensitive embrace by Matthew Anderson of Alaska, uh, by the way, in a way not unlike the way the Hopeful Taddy embraces Michael in the movie, or that Ben embraces Michael in the movie, or that uh, or that uh, um, Hunter embraces Michael in the movie, but this kind of embrace that is both s- sensitive and attentive, but also kind of marginally tragic. Uh, and in that case, it's you know the sort of gentle whisper of your makeup is terrible, uh, as a kind of strange affirmation of a shared pain. And I think you get that in the movie too. This strange affirmation of a shared pain. Because ultimately, the Hattie character uh, hugs Michael and has an emotionality and is not purely demonic, but really is always an extension of his particular sadness. And it's something that lives with him and stays with him, and we get that at the end of the movie, where we see him looking uh, like he has dark eyes, like he's uh, scared of water. He has these sort of indications of... uh, having carried over some of the traits of Hattie or becoming some version of Hattie. But again, the plot mechanisms don't really matter so much to me, but uh, what's important there is the recognition that he carries with him some element of that sadness at all times. And that's not easily resolvable and it hasn't gone away, but it's perhaps been internalized in a way that he can continue to survive with it as a part of him. So I love I love the movie, and I love Alaska in this movie. I love uh, the performance by Jamal Douglas, who's the lead in this movie, and um, I'm 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 really excited. Again, please watch it on Crypt TV or on Shutter. And um, I, you know, congrats to Sam Wyman on the movie, and I hope that he makes many more uh, wonderful films. All right, I think that's pretty much all that I have to say about this. And, you know, there's just one last thing, which is um, I really have to tell you this at the end of every, every episode, is that it is uh, it is, it is is contagious, and it, we do recruit. So um, you're totally gay now. Bye.